0: Welcome to the Hydrican Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrican Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hi, I'm Jacques Ame, a partner in the Zurich Office of Hydrican Struggles and a member of the global consumer practice. In today's podcast, I'm speaking to Alexis Nazar, the CEO of Bata, the 124 years old family-owned global footwear company. Previously with Heineken, Alexis has covered a broad range of leadership roles, such as global chief marketing officer and president of Europe. He also has worked for 17 years with Procter & Gamble in senior management roles. Alexis, first of all, Happy New Year. Thank you. And a big welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Well, Alexis, in previous interviews, you have described Bata as a stable and disciplined company, but also as a 124-year-old startup. What do you mean with the 124-year-old startup and how does this strong heritage coexist with the company's new business strategy?
1: I like to use that terminology because it reflects a few things which are reality in our organization. The first one is that there is a lot of pride, tradition, and values. But also, when you're a very old company, by definition, most companies start being decentralized. And there has been a very significant part of the company's reality, which was highly decentralized. And as you start becoming larger, and you expand more and have a broader footprint, right? you need to start institutionalizing a little bit more capabilities, particularly in a globalized world. And that is why some of these processes and capabilities are at an infant stage. So it does feel like at moments that you are building up a startup. Mm -hmm. And that is where the the paradox is.
0: Bata has been growing exponentially since your appointment. Both top line and bottom line, uh, I know that you like to talk about the V-curves, and you might tell us a few things about those V-curves as well. But beyond those, can you give us, Alexis, examples on how you and your leadership team successfully manage these turnarounds, but also the repositioning of the Bata brand globally?
1: The reason why we came up with the notion of the V-curve is I like to look at businesses in a historical context. So I like to look back five years, 10 years, and sometimes 15 years. And the V-curves came from the notion that when you look at the curves of development, until we implemented the new strategy, which is called sweeping Angela of her feet, you had consistently across all parameters a V-curve. You know, a c- curve going down and then a curve rebounding after the implementation of the new strategy. And we like that word because it enshuffles quite a bit of confidence in the organization when you talk about it V, like in victory. Mm-hmm. And, and the V curves are for everybody. It is not for me. It's not for the executive committee. It's for everybody in the ecosystem of the company. How did we get to these results? Yes. Um, it is simple and not so simple at the same time. Mm. <laughs> like everything in life, no? Yes. <laughs> yes. As Einstein said, you need to make things as simple as possible, but no simpler than that. Um, first is having a good strategy. Now, what do we mean by having a good strategy? Is not only clarity, executability, but asymmetricness. A good strategy needs to be proprietary. You need to be able to do things that only you can do. And that is why It needs to be well-grounded into our intrinsic craft. What is it that we could do better than anyone else? This is what makes a difference between a plain vanilla strategy and a a strategy that makes a difference. And the good part is that it's an organization which is very good in execution. It's a very disciplined organization. So intrinsically disciplined organization, when your strategy is potent and when it is very well-communicated, the execution becomes relatively easy, which is, which is not so obvious across industries. So we spend a long time and a lot of effort deploying the strategy using language which is memorable, colorful, and applicable to everyone. To, for example, drive the focus on product, which is really important. Because beyond fads, right? Digital transformation, agility, disruption in the end, we sell shoes. And the reason the consumer enters our store or goes to our website is neither to play tennis nor to drink tea. is to buy shoes. So if the shoes don't deliver, you're not going anywhere. So this is why we call the first strategy, product is king, with language that is memorable. And then come, in the end, the capabilities, which I talked about a little earlier. Strategy, execution, capability. And that we have started at the same time as we've executed the strategy, which is the notion of building the plane while we're flying it. And I'm pleased to say that in most capabilities, we are totally on track because we have a fairly detailed capability agenda. And, uh, and we should be on track towards the 2020 finish line. Such as starting? Digital, com- mm-hmm. brand management, innovation, uh, sales associates in the stores, link between on and offline, supply chain, with all its components. You know, we have 5,600 stores. How do we manage logistics? How do we manage manufacturing? How do we manage suppliers? In a new world, which is digitally enabled, importantly, not the traditional way, the traditional way, we know how to do it. It sounds easy when you say it,
0: (laughs) but obviously we all know it's not that easy. So, you know, if you think about the major hurdles that you've been facing along that journey, which would be those hurdles that you've been facing?
1: Some of the hurdles that you see in an organization that has been present for a long time is notions of competitiveness, Mm -hmm. which might need updating. Let's take, for example, a simple thing like Black Friday in Europe. Black Friday in Europe, it was pretty clear that it was going to become a major phenomenon, followed by Cyber Monday. And for a long time, there was a discussion whether to participate or not participate. Frankly, in today's world, you participate or you're out of the game, right? Mm-hmm. And this year, we de- decided to participate fullheartedly and use that opportunity not only to participate, but to win during that period. How did you do it? And we did win. We grew turnover 15% over the similar period past year, and we grew gross profit. So we did not do it by just you know, discounting like, like crazy because that's not very difficult. Anyone can do that. So how did we do it? I'm not going to give you trade secrets. I'll give you probably <laughs> a couple of anecdotes to yes. illustrate. On the Bata business, we came up with the notion of hourly rolling promotions online, mm-hmm. which is if you're going to benefit from interesting deals, you have to be stuck to Bata.com for a long while. Maybe at some point, your favorite shoe will come on sale. So we created a little bit of fun and dynamism in the way we did the promotion. And we did not do it across the board. We were very selective. We looked at what kind of consumer buys at what hour of the day, looking for what type of shoes. So we were quite analytical in how we designed it. We also created collections which were particular for these events. But of course, you can only do things when you plan way in advance, not when two weeks ago you say, oh, what do I do on Black Friday? This is why we started planning six months in advance. Another thing we did with the AW Lab banner, which is not the Bata banner, but it's the second largest banner at Bata, which is a sportswear banner. We gave consumers who are part of the loyalty club the opportunity to choose the shoes they would like to have promoted. And we did not offer that to everyone, but there was some sort of a raffle. And if you won the raffle, whatever shoe you pick is off 15%. And the beauty is people don't need 40 or 50% because it's the shoe they like. They were happy enough to get it at 15% off because that's what they wanted. You know, that week was a very big success for us. So results in terms of sales were up 15% Mm -hmm. and gross profit was up 9%. So we made money too. Which is important because, you know, losing your shirt in a promotional period, you don't need a genius to do that. <laughs> that's, that's a great example of how Bata
0: can innovate and do things differently. Yes. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Back, back to my point on the hurdles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had in mind the element of culture. Mm-hmm. And we've all learned somewhere that uh, culture eats strategy at breakfast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, which are those cultural ingredients that you're trying to promote within Bata?
1: One of one philosophy I have about culture is that it does eat strategy for breakfast, but it should not be overfed either. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes organizations which are unwilling to change allocate under culture things that have nothing to do with culture. I even heard a colleague saying that their company had a decentralized culture, said, I'm sorry, that's not culture. That's a convenient way not to centralize. So culture is about elements that have built along decades of people operating together in a comparable environment, like nations are built. And I would say some of the traits of Bata about culture, some of the positive trait, is a strong attachment to the brand. Um, It's a company where really people feel ownership, pride, which goes beyond cold career calculations, which you might see in other multinationals. That is one element. The other element is really passion for the consumer. I'm not saying we're the best in serving the consumer today. We will be, though. But we, people deeply care about the consumer coming in and be satisfied. And the third element is entrepreneurship. That decentralized history created an entrepreneurial spirit. It's not that people in the country are just waiting for guidance from the center. They do their own thing when they have to. And when the center brings value added, of course they take it. They're smart. They have to do it. So so these are elements which I believe are an intrinsic part of of the Bata culture, which can be strength if harnessed properly. But sometimes in progress you also have impediments. And oftentimes long history, heavy culture sometimes creates stiffness towards changing and discomfort in changing. But the good news, though, is that the world is changing so rapidly and the competitive environment is becoming so harsh if you're too slow to adapt, you can see it in your bottom line within weeks. So in a way, the stiffness of competition, the intensity of competition and the technological changes are actually forcing us to become more agile as a company.
0: I do recall also a conversation with you, Alexis, where you were talking about aesthetic and taste as being an ingredient that counts for you. Yes. And that you're trying also to inject into this uh, uh, organization. What can you tell us about this?
1: We will never be uh, Louboutin right? It's not what we are, it's not what we could be, and it's not what we should be. But today, there is no consumer that buys a fashion item just because it's comfortable. There is no consumer who tells you, I go to shop at Aldi because I'm cheap. She'll tell you, I'll buy at Aldi because I'm smart. But in the end, since nobody needs shoes, you need to be tempted. Everybody has shoes. Mm -hmm. We're no longer in the 19th century. So if she's not tempted by the store, she's not inspired by the appearance of the sales associates. If she's not attracted by the shoes, she's not going to buy them, assuming she walks in at all. So that notion of attention to finish of a shoe, attention to detail of the fixturing, of the appearance of the staff, of the beauty of the window is a cultural component that is important to develop even though we are in the value category everybody needs to develop that because it's a business of temptation shoes and fashion is the uber discretionary category you could any household around the world can get by without buying shoes for a full year without a problem that's different from laundry and diapers
0: well that's a that's a good comparison you know, you you brought clarity on those cultural ingredients that you're trying to promote within your organization. Now, how do you do it?
1: The best way to promote and to leverage cultural elements is, one, to act by example. If you profess something that you're not doing, nobody will believe you. And unfortunately, one of the Difficult or, or 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 unthankful aspect of being a CEO is you're on a catwalk all the time. Everybody's looking at you and interpreting what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're not doing, and what you're not saying, right? Mm-hmm. Because everything communicates, as you know. So first, you have to live it. The second one, you have to communicate it, and communicate it in a linear way, directly, or in an indirect way, in 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 the in in the, in the way you approach events, promotions, communications, announcements. And last but not least, you have to make sure that your strategy is well ingrained in your values. Otherwise, the executability becomes very difficult.
0: Indeed. Um, you've, you've talked about agility before. I've heard yeah. that word. Agility has become a key aspect of leaders' strategy. What does agility mean to you as a leader?
1: I'll tell you maybe what agility means for me for my business. Yes. Because I can give you maybe a more tangible example. Mm-hmm. Because what agility means for me as a leader it probably applies to most CEOs. Mm-hmm. There's one thing about agility which is which everybody has to be cognizant about is the fact that just technology is just moving very quickly. Very, very quickly. And if there is one industry that is feeling it in its teeth, is retail. I mean, you're hearing the glorious stories, and the horror stories that are happening around the world every day. So it's an industry which is moving very, very rapidly, and a lot of that is caused or enabled from a positive standpoint by massive technological changes. And these technological changes are a little bit of an impetus and, 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 and a constraint for us to actually become truly agile in how we react or we leverage them. Or sometimes we decide not to, but then it's deliberate. It is not through inertia, right? So that is one thing, which is technology. The second one, which is directly related to the fashion industry, is the see-now-buy-now see now, now phenomenon. You know, you can open up your your uh, your computer and find a very cool pair of sneakers, and you click and you expect it tomorrow. You, fi- you are tempted every day online. You are tempted every day when you go to a department store, when you go to Selfridges, when you go to Auchan, sorry, when you go to Printemps, when you go to Galerie Lafayette, temptation abound every day and if you are a mono brand or mostly mono brand as we are a retailer and you order shoes twice a year where's the temptation what is going to let your consumer come in to find out keep coming in what's out there what's new what's sexy what's interesting so that is forcing us to really radically change the way we develop we we Activate. procure we deliver, distribute and activate our collections. Mm-hmm. You know, historically, in many countries we're delivering collections twice a year. We are moving more now towards 12 times a year, and it maybe sometimes 24 times a year through the notion of drops. Yeah. And, and, and we're not there,? Huh? This is we're, we're really in the middle of that journey, but that is really, really necessary. You've got to keep the temptation going. Talking about talents now, you
0: also mentioned that your goal as a CEO is to build a company that lasts. How are you retaining, how are you attracting the right talent to turn the company into a kind of institution?
1: That's a very good that's a very good question. Because I think the intrinsic role of any CEO is to institutionalize the companies they run. There is nothing I find more unfortunate uh, when a CEO leaves and having the company collapse. And that happens either because the CEO did not build the sustainable capabilities, or he left too early in his tenure. In terms of talent, there is retention, recruitment, and adaptation. So retention, we don't have a big problem. We have people who are very loyal, who, who stick it in, uh, who love being at Bata. We have one of the lowest turnovers in the industry, so I don't have that problem. In attraction, because in many parts of the world, the brand image took a serious beating in the past 15 years. And I know from my Heineken days, brand equity is company equity. You know, when you said Heineken, they think about the Heineken advertising. They don't think about the corporate head office, right? And same with us. So in order for us to increasingly attract talent, we started communicating a little bit more our story to the world, because historically our company was very discreet, did not like to be out in the media, did not like to speak out, and 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 a certain element of that will continue, but we're a consumer company, we're a consumer-facing company, and we have a duty to communicate. And you have great stuff to tell, exactly. And we increasingly have good things to tell. And when you say these stories, you know, talent, students, people working in adjacent industries take an interest. And the other thing is when you, as you know, talent starts with the head. When you start having regional bosses, functional bosses who are big calibers interviewing you then you believe the story. If you're being interviewed by somebody who's likely to be your boss, whose caliber you question, your probability of being interested becomes low. So so a lot of that is about communication and then integration. And integration is important. And oftentimes, honestly, integration is seen by HR departments of giving an integration or an induction program. That is the mechanical part. That's not enough. The big training on integration has to be on legacy employees, because there's nothing more easy for a legacy employee to do an organ reject of somebody coming in to make your life less comfortable. And I see that every day. Somebody coming in, doing things in a different way, communicating in a different way is annoying. So you start not collaborating. And then the company no longer gets the value that that person was supposed to bring. And that is why a lot of the training when you integrate external talent has to be with your internal talent. With a high and clear demand, you've got to let them in the tent. They are part of the team and we are on one team. And the only failure we will recognize is a collective one. What about diversity in that equation? The biggest diversity I believe in is thinking diversity. Because I've been in companies that have done a lot of the classical diversity, you know, talent race, etc. But they were still extremely intolerant of thinking diversity. But the good news, though, is that thinking diversity is closely correlated with cultural, racial, and gender diversity. So we believe in it because it is a competitive advantage. But we still have a glass ceiling. If I take gender, we have a lot of middle management, who is female, actually 50%. We're pretty good until middle management. And then it gets rarified as it goes to senior management. So we have a lot of work to do, not only in terms of role models, but in terms of tandems. What do I mean by tandems? To effect change, you should never have somebody feel isolated. So the day you have one female on your executive committee, you have to make sure you have two. Same thing with racial or religious minorities, because when there are two, they're they're stronger. There's less pressure to completely comply with the dominant group. So that is really important. I believe in the tandem notion. Now, when it gets to racial and cultural diversity, we're doing very well. There is no cultural or racial skew. We have people coming from everywhere. In my executive committee, I have really every pretty much every single continent represented. In reality, the majority of our senior level executives really do reflect the top three operating companies where we operate which I think is a healthy sign because we have to give back to the communities where we operate.
0: Let's talk a bit more about yourself. Yeah. How do you think your leadership style will need to evolve given the constant volatility out there?
1: When I talk about leadership, to me, I use less the word style because I prefer the substance of leadership over style because frankly, style is superficial. And And leadership essentially is about being trusted. You won't take direction from someone you don't trust. And this is where authenticity is important. When a leader is a fake, everybody feels it. When a leader tries to be someone they're not, everybody feels it. So this is the part of leadership that should not be adaptable. Your intrinsic character or personality should stay the same. I should never attempt to look like an introvert. I will never succeed. And I don't see merit in it, for example. Okay? Everybody is what he is, same with you. But there are elements of how you leverage the ingredients of leadership that need to be adapted. For example, the way you communicate could be adapted. The way you make decisions could be adapted. You know, When I was leading the organization in Russia, I was not leading the organization the same as when I was in the Netherlands in the Dutch consensual culture. Where everything is done by consensus, and it's not the same when I'm the CEO of a fashion retail company, where people expect top-bottom decision making quickly. So, so these are the elements that have to be adapted. If you're too rigid as a leader, your mileage is short.
0: Now, you have been working in large multinational companies like P&G and and Heineken, and today you are part of a family-owned company. What did you learn over the last two years related to being part and leading? a family-owned company.
1: All families are different. So, so, so there are lots of idiosyncrasies depending from one family to another and one family business to the other. However, there are some common denominators in terms of the strengths and the challenges that come with a family-controlled business. One of the positives of a family-controlled business is, is values which are firm and stable. Uh, You don't have big existentialist crises in families, in businesses which are family controlled, because there is a big notion of continuity in values. That is one of the positives. The second one of the positives is the fact that there is a long-term view to the business. People don't look at it quarter by quarter, which is healthy and good, provided management is disciplined enough not to become too relaxed with that view of things. And I assure you, we're not. (laughs) And the third positive thing also is is care for the individual. I noticed that generally family-controlled companies are a little bit more caring about individuals and and a bit more compassionate, which Mm -hmm. which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. There are some challenges, though, in family-controlled companies that we need to be honest about, right? First of all, um, you have a lot of paradigms that have accumulated over years and generations, which can become stale at some point you know for example one of the paradigms in our company has been that you know manu- manufacturing is sacrosanct manufacturing can be a very competitive advantage in many instances but not in all instances right mm-hmm. so this is just a small example to illustrate that family controlled mm-hmm. companies tend to carry paradigms which sometimes might or might not be up to date uh, anymore another challenge can be on governance you have families which are very disciplined in really being clear what their role is, what their role is not. You have families which are less disciplined, and especially families where you had family members getting involved in management. Here you need to make an extra effort in collaboration with them, of course, because it's for the greater good of everyone, to make sure that the governance is clear and is adhered to, which is something you don't have in a publicly traded company.
0: Another question on innovation, I'm sure there will have been many lessons throughout your career in how to best incubate and
1: support innovation. What stands out most for you? I have a lot of passion for this topic. Indeed. You know why? Because in in the business, if there is one thing which is an indefinite win, which is win, 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 innovation. With innovation, everybody wins. In innovation, the company wins. Suppliers win. Consumers win. Third parties win. Governments win. Everybody wins with innovation. Even competition wins because it learns. So Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about that topic. The three things which I learned is, which have worked for me on innovation, is first, you have to listen to the consumer, but not ask the chicken at what sauce it wants to be baked. (laughs) So you need a good dose of listening and a good dose of self-confidence because consumers don't know what they don't know. I'm sure if there was a consumer focus group on the iPad, probably they would have never launched it. So you need people who are senior and confident enough to absorb with measure what the consumer feedback is. That's one. Second one is let a thousand flowers bloom. I don't believe in hoarding innovation or over-centralizing it and say only that group can innovate because innovation can come from anywhere. So this is why I much more believe in a rather loose uh, sourcing of innovation from our internal operating companies, from our central innovation group, from competition, from relevant industries, from irrelevant industries. Who cares? I would let a thousand flowers bloom. The biggest innovation we ever did at Heineken was an observation we made in a ski resort in Austria, which is Radler. It became the biggest innovation in the company's history, and there was not much rocket science about it. And the third one is to test, test, and test. Any idiot can have an opinion. What matters is test results. And even when it gets to recycling old ideas, you have to keep testing them to make sure that they remain current.
0: I I know you think big, I know you have big ambition for Bata. I don't dare to ask about your most crazy dreams. Let's stick to your dream about Bata in five years time. How do you say it? The most comfortable shoe in the world. Full stop. Yeah. Well, Alexis, this has been a very inspiring conversation. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you, Jacques. My pleasure. (music)
0: Thanks for listening to the Hydric Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future-shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.